I'm going to read the, the scriptures. My name's Will. I'm going to read the scriptures tonight uh, for you. Um, so this will form the context from which Paul is going to talk to us. And they're found on page 9, 10, and 11. It's quite a, a bit of reading. But it's tremendous because it's a grand narrative. And oftentimes to find our world, it's good to work in a bigger story than just ourselves in a grand narrative. And here we have in Genesis where Father God sets out the restoration plan for all humanity. And, uh, and in Ab Ab Abram, who becomes Abraham, he becomes the father of a promise. And he promises Abraham that um, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And then we'll pick up in Galatians how Paul, the Apostle Paul, who knew Scripture better than any of us can imagine, starts to relate back to that grand promise. So follow me, perhaps, on page 9 through, and uh, we'll take that adventure, take that dance, that journey together. So from Genesis 12, beginning at verse 1. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I'll show you. I'll make you into a great nation, and I'll bless you. I'll make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I'll curse those who curse you. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abraham went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. And in Genesis 15... After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. From the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited to him as righteousness. Now over the page. Galatians chapter 3. <clears throat> you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain, if it really was in vain, so again I ask, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by you believing what you heard? So also Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, as it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly no one who relies on the law is justified before God, because the righteous will live by faith. 
The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says, the person who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I'm going to be preaching uh, from that Galatians passage uh, that we just read there on page 11 of Zine, so it'd be lovely to keep that handy. But let me pray first. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, your word and your spirit, uh, the power in both your word and your spirit to change lives. And so please remake us this evening, uh, Lord God, in your image. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Human beings have a remarkable capacity for foolishness. I read recently about a man who woke up early one morning in the middle of winter to find that the engine of his car had frozen. His solution? To pour hot petrol into his car. So he took a jerry can into his kitchen, he found his biggest pot, and he began to heat the petrol on his stove, heating a combustible liquid on a gas stove. Well, as you can imagine, that didn't go so well. Or there's the story of two truck drivers who stopped before a low-hanging overpass to decide whether their semi-trailer could go under it. The driver pointed out that the overpass had a clearance of 4.1 metres, but their truck was at least 4.4 metres high. But his colleague had an even more astute Observation, there weren't any cops around, so they should just go for it. (laughs) And they did. And again, it didn't go so well. The only way you could top this kind of folly would be to try to finish the Christian faith in your own strength. It's not a good idea. In fact, it's foolish. Today's passage reminds us how prone we are to do this very thing. I'm certainly guilty of it. How about you? You see, the Christians in Galatia are trying to finish the Christian race in their own strength. They're slipping back into their old way of life, their Old Testament ways, the works of the Old Testament law. And Paul, as we can see in the passage in front of us, is beside himself. He can't believe it. Let me read that beginning again for you. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I'd like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by believing what you heard? Have you experienced so much in vain, if it really was in vain? So again I ask, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? I don't know if you were counting, but that's five rhetorical questions, all amounting to the same thing. I think verse three probably captures it best. Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? 
Are you so foolish that you're trying to finish the Christian faith in your own strength by returning to the religious works of the Old Testament? How can you leave behind the gospel of grace, the free and unmerited gift of eternal life that you receive through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, and then return to try and earn your salvation through religious works? Is that how you receive the Holy Spirit? Through keeping rules that you could never keep? Or simply through faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus? So Paul says, who has bewitched you, verse 3? Who's enchanted you? Who's charmed you, beguiled you, cast a spell over you? Or as he said back in chapter 1, verse 7, who is it that's throwing you into confusion? You're slipping back into your old ways. The Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the old way of relating to God through the law, the priesthood, and sacrificial system. And where did that get you? No one was saved through works of the law. That's why Jesus had to come. The Galatians were confused, and so they were retreating into their former way of life. And truth to tell, the Old Testament can be confusing, can't it? That's why when we read our passage and Paul starts mentioning Abraham and the law in verses 6 to 14, our eyes begin to glaze over. But Paul's essential point there is this. The Old Testament, the old covenant, the old way of relating to God, well, it was intentionally flawed in order to anticipate the New Testament, the new covenant, the new and better way of relating to God. But crucially, both are based on faith. Well before the law was given, well before circumcision was given, Abraham was justified, that is, made right with God, not through circumcision or through the works of the law, but through faith, as are all his children, which includes us. Abraham was saved by faith, because no one is saved through works of the law. So the Galatians didn't know what to do with their Old Testament now that they were Christians. And truth to tell, that's true of many Christians today. And so here's what Paul's trying to tell them, I think, and it's going to be helpful for us too. At the risk of flattening out the Old Testament a little bit, our Bibles are divided into two parts, the Old and the New Testaments. The Old and new covenants is a better word. The old and new ways of relating to God. The old way of relating to God was through faith, through belief. But that belief was demonstrated through the law, the priesthood, and the sacrificial system. A system characterized by religious works repeated over and over again. The new way of relating to God, the new covenant, the New Testament is, well, it's also through faith. It's also through belief. But that belief is demonstrated not in the law, the priesthood, and the sacrificial system, but in the once and for all death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so this sits, I think, right at the heart of the Galatian problem. They didn't know how to join their Old and New Testaments, which is a problem for many of us too. This week, for example, at Alpha, uh, in our table discussions, uh, the Old Testament book of Leviticus came up. What are we to do with that book? Blood from start to finish, animal sacrifice. 
Sure, the animals were slaughtered humanely and their meat provided food and income for the priesthood, but what's with all the blood everywhere? Just to give you a bit of an idea, here's a section from Leviticus 7. These are the regulations for the guilt offering, which is most holy. The, the guilt offering is to be slaughtered in the place where the burnt offering is slaughtered, and its blood is to be splashed against the sides of the altar. All its fat shall be offered, the fat tail and the fat that covers the internal organs, both kidneys with the fat on them in the loins, and the long lobe of the liver, which is to be removed with the kidneys. The priest shall burn them on the altar as a food offering presented to the Lord. It is a guilt offering. So we have blood everywhere. Priests covered in blood. Don't think long, flowing white robes like we wear at the 8.30 service. Think butchers' aprons covered in gore. Blood running down the altar. Imagine me preaching to you covered in blood. Imagine blood sprinkled, dripping, pooling everywhere up here. Imagine smell. The temple of God, a grisly scene with blood everywhere. Day in, day out, week in, week out, ad infinitum. Why? Because the Israelites couldn't keep the law. They couldn't do it in their own strength. Try as they might, they couldn't be good enough. And the punishment for sin, well, it's death. All that blood, a constant reminder of their sinfulness, that sin is costly, that the punishment for sin is death. That's the old covenant, the old way of relating to God. Sin atoned for by the blood of bulls and goats and rams and lambs, again and again and again, to remind Israel of her sinfulness before God and that the punishment for sin is death. And so this is what Paul's talking about in the Galatians, uh, there in our passage in verse 10, where he says, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, a curse of blood. As it's written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law, which of course no one can. All were under sin's curse because no one could do everything written in the Old Testament law. Religious works don't work because no one can keep them up. All that the law resulted in was streams of endless blood. The whole point of the law was for Israel to realize that they could not do this in their own strength, that they needed a savior, a great high priest, an all-sufficient sacrifice to pay for their sins once and for all. They had the law not written on paper, but written on hearts changed by the Holy Spirit. They needed the New Testament, the new covenant, the new and better way of relating to God, not through law, but through spirit, and not through religious works, but through the work of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus took the curse of the law on himself. He became a curse for us. And in doing so, he fulfilled the law and also rendered it obsolete. He opened up a new and better way of relating to God. He, he became that temple filled with blood. He is the new meeting place between God and humankind. He became that priest covered in blood. I wear white robes in the morning because of him. 
His appearance was marred beyond human recognition. He became the lamb who was butchered on the altar. His body was broken for us. He was the only one who ever fully kept the law and therefore was the only one fully qualified to lay down his life for ours, the only sufficient sacrifice for our sins. We'll mention the overarching narrative of the Bible. And it amounts pretty much to this. After thousands of years of trying to do it in our own strength and failing, the Son of God came down to do it himself. He was born not in a palace, but in a stable, in the feeding trough of an animal. He was raised not as a king, but as a carpenter. Three years in public ministry and 20 years working with his hands as one of us. Only Jesus fully kept the law like none of us. He was the only one ever to do so, so that he could exchange his perfect life for ours. Jesus was a carpenter, which means that almost every day of his life he would have hammered nails into wood. Can you imagine every time that that hammer fell, what must have been going on in Jesus' mind? That the last hammer he would ever see would be the hammer that drove nails through his wrists into a wooden cross. 20 years of daily reminders of his death to come. It's our sin that put him there. Nails hammered through the nerve centers in his wrists, through his ankles. Naked, battered, bleeding on the splintered wooden cross. The crucifixion. It's where we get the word excruciating because it was excruciating. Even the Romans who loved the blood of the Colosseum were embarrassed about it. It was such an awful way to die. There's one account where a Roman citizen goes on holidays right after a crucifixion. And when he returns home to his horror, the victim is still alive. It was a slow, painful and excruciating death. Can you see Jesus hanging there, hanging on that pole? You foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus was clearly portrayed as crucified. Red fire is consuming his wrists and ankles, and now leached through his wrists and one through both his ankles. His entire body weight is supported by those nails, which are more like metal stakes. Only they're more than supporting him. You see, he needs them to pull himself up if he's going to breathe. Fresh and dried blood covers his face from his crown of thorns. The lacerations on his back throb and bleed. He's reeling from the shock, weak from blood loss, bruised and swollen from the beating that he's received. And the interminable cycle of horror continues over and over again. He pulls himself up with his arms and pushes with his legs just enough to open his chest cavity so that he can breathe, his wrists and ankles screaming in pain. One breath, and then he collapses down again until the demand for oxygen forces him to pull and push himself up some more over and over again. The King of Kings and Lord of Lords sat down on his throne and was nailed to it for us. It's the great exchange. 
the heart of our faith, the height of his glory. All our songs sing about it. Our sinless saviour died that we might be counted free. The one who hung the earth in its place hangs there. The one who fixed the heavens is fixed there. The one who made all things fast is made fast upon that cross. It is finished, Jesus Christ. He took all the judgment of God in himself. All that we've done, all that was wrong in us, sin's curse on every generation since Adam and Eve, all the pain and suffering of the universe, the curse of our fallen world which groans with volcanic eruptions in Hawaii, with cancer, with fighting and violence in homes around the globe from dusk to dawn like happened in the Margaret River on Friday. The quiet desperation of the man who buttons on his Sunday best knowing that he hasn't kept the rules. Of course not. Cursed is anyone who relies on the law. But look, cursed is Christ. And so it is by faith. There he is, broken, beaten, bloodied. Blood everywhere. The new covenant in his blood, once and for all. It's finished as Jesus breathes his last. You foolish Galatians. Who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. You couldn't do it. So he did it for you. Are you so foolish that you're now trying to do this in your own strength again? When you have his strength to call on, his spirit who lives inside of you to draw upon, are you so foolish? And you know... (laughs) I don't think we can be too harsh on the Galatians because the truth of the matter is that we're a lot like them. We've been saved by grace, but so often we live by works. We too fall back into our old ways. We too try and finish the Christian faith in our own strength. I know I do. Look, here's perhaps three brief examples to show you what I mean. Um, there's great danger in each of these examples. Uh, It's like they're insidious, almost like the compass of our human hearts is always pulling us back to do things in our strength and not in God's strength. Uh, So briefly, uh, three examples. Uh, Living in our own strength, growing in our faith in our own strength, and the suffocating, spirit-killing phenomenon that's known as legalism, which I'm going to define for us a bit later. So firstly, so often as Christians, we're saved by the gospel, but practically speaking, we live by works. We try and live the Christian life under our own steam, in our own strength. God's just lifted this huge load off our shoulders, and we pile it on again. We're infinitely loved. We have inestimable worth. We have vast, largely untapped joy in the Holy Spirit. And yet we slip back into our old ways of trying to prove our worth and attain our happiness through human projects, through moral effort, through career, through the the way we look, through the friends that we have. And these things come to characterize our lives in the place of Jesus. They're poor substitutes 
they fail us. They end up draining our life of joy. And all of a sudden, we find ourselves living in our own strength again. It's a bit like this. It's a bit like leaving church this evening, uh, going out to your car, turning it on, uh, taking off the handbrake, and then getting out and pushing your car all the way home. Why go back to the effort and frustrations of your former way of life? Get in, step on the accelerator, and enjoy the best of life. Why try and do life in your own strength when you have the Holy Spirit? The vast, largely untapped joy and peace in the presence of God. What are our feeble resources when compared to his? So firstly, don't try and do this in your own strength. To do so is foolishness. The Christian life is meant to be lived in his strength, not our own. The second great danger that we share with the Galatians, I think, is, is that of trying to grow as Christians in our own strength. See, it's easy to fall into the trap of thinking that we grow as Christians by the hard work of applying biblical principles to every part of our lives, through discipline, through great effort, through willpower. But again, that's importing works into the gospel of grace. And works don't work. You know, when I think of religious works, I think of Kieran Perkins. Do you remember him? He was our greatest ever 1,500-metre Olympic swimmer. But do you know, from the day he retired, he didn't step foot into a swimming pool for more than 10 years. He was completely off it. And then, when you think of a lot of our retired swimmers, the Scott Miller, Nick Darcy, and Grant Hackett, and many like them who went completely off the rails. Getting up at 4 a.m. all your teenage years, doing hundreds of laps of the pool before school, the unrelenting discipline, the grueling schedule, well, it rarely ends well. And you know, the Christian life is the same because we can't do this in our own strength. If we try, there's going to be a blowout we might give it all up forever. Progress in the Christian life isn't about human effort. It comes through daily repentance and faith and the work of the Holy Spirit, just like our conversion did. It comes by not trying harder, but by applying the gospel of grace again and again to our lives. Now look, at, perhaps at this point, perhaps a little bit theoretical, so how about a practical example here? I want you to take the sin of anger as an example. Now, I'm not sure if this is a sin that you struggle with, but if not, we'll just use anger as kind of a, a placeholder and insert, you know, the sin that you struggle with here. Uh, but for us, let's take anger as our example. Now, we might pray, Dear God, I'm sorry I lashed out again at my work colleague in that passive-aggressive kind of way that I do. I'll try harder, I promise. Please give me the discipline I need to control myself. Please help me to work on my interpersonal skills, my, my empathy, my patience, so that I can avoid conflict like this in the future. But you know, in verse 5 of our passage, Paul says that the Holy Spirit works in our lives not through hard work and discipline and all of that, but through faith. The Spirit works as Christians don't rely on their works, but as we 
consciously and continuously rest in Christ alone for our acceptability and our completeness. So with the sin of anger, instead of bringing human effort, we need to bring the gospel. Instead, we might pray something like this. Why, Lord, am I feeling angry like this? Why do I lash out like this? Well, Paul would tell us that our uncontrolled anger is a result of not living in line with the gospel. It means that though we began with Jesus as saviour, some things now become our functional saviour in place of Jesus. Instead of believing that Christ is our hope and goodness, we're looking to something else as a hope, to some other way to make us feel good and complete. Instead of just hoping God will remove our anger or simply exercising willpower against it, we should ask, if I'm being angry and unforgiving, what is it that I think I need so much? What's, what's really going on here? What's being withheld that I think that I must have if I'm to feel complete, if I'm to have hope, if I'm to be a person of worth? Usually deep anger is because of something like this. It might be that we want comfort above all other things, and someone's made our lives harder, and so we grow angry with them. It might be that we're worshipping other people's approval, and so we get angry with anyone who shows us up or gets in our way. Comfort, approval, control. These are functional saviours. And when they're blocked, well, we get angry. The answer is not simply trying harder to directly control anger. It's repenting for the self-righteousness and the lack of rejoicing in the finished work of Christ, which is at the root of the anger. I wonder what functional saviour is at the root of your presenting sin. See, progress in the Christian life comes through applying the gospel to ourselves over and over again, exposing and removing our functional saviours. In the case of anger, as we make our hearts look at Christ crucified, the Spirit will work in us to replace that functional saviour with the saviour, and the root of our anger will wither. Look, finally, and I'll, I'll conclude with this one. Finally, there's legalism which is raising human rules above faith in Jesus. That's what the Galatians are doing. And it's a trap that so many churches fall into. Legalism is a many-headed monster. It can take many different forms, but all of them are equally deadly to the life of the Spirit, and so we must watch out for it. This means that if we've been Christians for a long time and find that our joy is gone, or if we find ourselves campaigning for some minor matter while insisting that it's major, if we're making our human rules be of divine origin, if if we're, in other words, drifting closer to the shores of legalism, then come back. Legalism takes many forms, but all are equally deadly to the Holy Spirit. And you know what? Denominations are so prone to legalism. Be instead people who pray, people who read their Bible, people who serve those around them because in Christ and by the Spirit, you can now please God. Not through obligation, but through joy. 
Not through hard work, but because your heart is bursting with his goodness, and so you must. The difference between a legalist and someone whose heart overflows in love and service of, each, of their neighbour, well, it can be hard to describe. But you know it when you see it. It's the difference between a cardboard cutout Christian and the real thing. It's the difference between someone who loves because she is loved and whose joy and peace and self-worth and hope lies not in the work that she's doing, but in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Someone not pushing that car, but with their pedal to the metal, living life to the fullest in his strength and not her own. Be like that person. Let me pray for us to close. Heavenly Father, in 2 Timothy 2 verse 8, Paul tells Timothy simply to remember Jesus. Please help us to remember Jesus in all we do. Thank you that we can now live our lives in his strength and not our own. Please help us to continually apply his gospel of grace to our lives and live by his spirit and not by our own human achievements. Father, please expose our functional saviours and replace them with Christ. May our joy, peace, self-worth and hope be in him and him alone. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray this evening.